Good morning, everyone. Before Ben comes up here and shares with us, I have the honor of reading our word here. Join me in John 10, verse 22 through the end of the chapter. Okay, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around and said, gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe me, <clears throat> do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up the stones <clears throat> again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Then Jesus, the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, made yourself God, Make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them <clears throat> gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Okay, Ben. Hey, y'all. Feels like summer. This is nice. The window's open. I'm really excited to talk about this passage. Um, John 10 is, like the whole chapter, is often a place where we go as like, systematic theologians or, you know, Bible studiers, uh, and we will often hear people go here to preach about um, eternal security and providence and what it means that, that our salvation is secure. And that's super important. That's in the text. Um, but today I, I want to take kind of a different track, just based on some things that Jesus has been showing me uh, lately. I want to talk, instead of eternal security, I'd love to talk about relational security, and uh, what, what it is that makes us secure in Christ? What is it that actually makes us people who have this sort of, um, this leisured confidence in God and this, this sort of, this sense before God that we are safe, we are secure in him. Uh, we, we don't actually have anything to worry about. People who can take Jesus seriously when he says crazy things like, do not be anxious about your life. What's that about? 
and, and what I've noticed uh, immediately, obviously, is that there is a whole set of people in this passage who are not feeling that sense of confidence, security, that sense of non-anxiousness, uh, who are actually quite upset. Uh, there's this group of people in the text that is referred to, in this translation anyway, as the Jews. And that's talking about specifically like the, the religious Jewish leaders of the time. The, the kind of the, the people in the temple where Jesus is at who are sort of in charge of running the show, right? So this, this group of people um, is, is sort of the, uh, the, the, ones, the ones to sort of dictate what religion and spirituality looks like for, for this culture and this time and this place. And uh, man, they're upset. Did, did you notice, like, we, it's easy to skim past, but at one point they pick up stones. They get as far as picking up stones to kill him. They're, they're, they're upset enough that they've actually, like, picked up the weapon. And then later on he says another thing, and then they say, well, now, then it says in verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him. So first they want to kill him, then they at least want to arrest him, but he escapes from their hands. What is making them so upset? It's wild. Good thing we don't ever get upset uh, when we are face to face with Jesus. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what, what's really going on with these uh, Jewish leaders? They say, uh, first of all, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So they're saying, okay, we have this thing that we're looking for, the Christ or the Messiah, the one that's gonna come. Um, if that's you, would you just tell us? Would you tell us in a way that we can understand, in a way that makes sense for us? And then later on, they say that, uh, they say, we're not gonna stone you for a good work, but we are stoning you because of you're, you're doing blasphemy. You're a man and you're making yourself equal with God. And so, so at that point then, they're, they're not angry at him because he's not giving them a straight answer. They're angry with him because he's claiming to be something beyond their categories. See, these, these Jewish leaders, they sort of uh, can be sort of the, the, the villain, the dastardly sort of in the gospel, right? We sort of look at them, we're like, oh, those dun, 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 the bad guys are here, right? But, but if we stop and think about what these people are actually doing, um, we might find a little bit of common ground, a little bit of compassion for them at least. Uh, these Jewish leaders are uh, actually very devout people. There's a reason they're in the temple. These Jewish leaders are primarily part of a group, kind of the most influential group of the time is called the Pharisees, and that, that word kind of has taken on all kinds of meanings. But what, what did a Pharisee mean in, in this time and place? Well, a Pharisee meant a person who was extraordinarily devout in obedience to God's law, and not just for the sake of being a good person. The Pharisees had this belief that if all of Israel could keep God's law perfectly, then at that point, the Messiah would come, God would be here, would liberate his people, all would be well, and we would be under God's good authority for all time. They had a specific end in mind. They were craving, seeking, orienting their life around the coming of the Messiah of God to set all things right for his people. And in their minds, the way that event would be triggered was by their own perfect, righteous law keeping. 
So when we talk about the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders and what they're doing and how they're confronting Jesus, I think we first need to just understand that these are devout followers of God. These are people who we would probably look at in church and be like, wow, that's some spiritual maturity. That's some holiness right there. And yet, they missed Jesus. They, they didn't see what he was really doing or who he really was to the point where he actually offended them. And when I think about it in those terms, I think, oh my goodness, are there times when I have such a clear expectation of what God must do and who God must be that I actually miss who God is and what God is doing? Are there times when I have such a clear understanding in my own mind, of my own way that this must go, that I actually take offense at what God is really doing? See, we we can look at them and be like, why in the world are they getting so upset? But what happens when someone challenges your paradigm? What happens when somebody says, something that doesn't quite jive with your way of looking at the world. And I don't think that just happens person to person. If this text is anything to go by, that can happen between us and God. There are times, I think, when we are so locked into a certain way of being that it becomes so easy to miss God. In fact, they're asking him for like a clear answer. And then later they're saying, no, 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 we don't want the good works that you've done. We want you to have this sort of small box theology that we've got going on over here. We want you to fit in this category here instead of all these works that you're doing from your father. What does that even mean? Jesus, we need you to be something other than you are. See, the Pharisees uh, are doing what I I will admit I can get in a habit of doing, which is that sometimes... I can get in the habit of continually requiring God to prove himself to me according to my own criteria. So when I come to this passage, I want to learn something really cool about Jesus. I want to uh, sort of be like, oh those, oh, those Pharisees, oh, those guys who don't really get it. Thank goodness I see Jesus. But the first thing I'm actually confronted with when I read the text carefully and closely is that um, I may be right there too sometimes. I may be right there too. So why, why is it exactly that they, they can't see Jesus and what Jesus is up to? Well, he actually sort of tells us in verse 25. This is a very famous passage. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So like, Jesus, tell us, are you the one? Have you come? Did we do it? Did we finally get our act together enough that the Messiah has come? Are you gonna do this list of things that we assume the Messiah is going to do? Is, are you the one? And Jesus says, well, actually, I have been telling you. Now, if you read earlier in the book of John or in the other gospels, he hasn't actually said, I'm Messiah to the Pharisees. We haven't, at least in the account we have, we have not seen him say those words. So what does he mean when he says, I have been telling you, I told you, and you do not believe? Well, he goes on to say, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. What he's saying is, I've been telling you by everything I've done 
everything I've said, everything I am, those things are bearing witness about who I am. And that's actually the core question. Who is Jesus? Who do we make him out to be? The famous theologian A.W. Tozer says that who you think God to be is actually the most important fact about you. How you conceive of God, who you imagine Jesus to be. Because see, if Jesus is a good moral teacher, that will mean something for your life and it will put your life in a certain trajectory. If Jesus is, as one of my friends recently put it, uh, in, in your mind, if Jesus is uh, scary and dangerous, that will mean something for the way you live your life. It'll set your life in a specific trajectory. If Jesus is in fact what he claims to be here, the son of God, one with God, if that is really who Jesus is, that will mean something else for your life. And Jesus is saying, y'all don't know who I am because you're not able to see what all these things I'm doing and saying are really about. You have such a specific list of things and categories that I must fit. You have specific answers in mind for the prayers that you've been praying. And therefore you can't see where I'm actually at work. I had an experience like this a couple of weeks ago. I, uh, been in a really intense time in my, uh, just in my work and in my life, and I've been praying every day, Jesus, I need help, oh, Jesus, I need help, I need your help, I need your help, I just, I wanna be faithful, I wanna, I wanna serve, I want to, I just need you to sustain me physically, spiritually, emotionally in this time. And, uh, and I had this experience a couple weeks ago where I got to my day off, and oh, thank goodness we made it through another week, and I was just walking, and I was praying to, to the Father, and I was just saying, God, why? Why aren't you helping me? Why aren't you giving me more? I've been asking. Why aren't you actually giving me what I've been asking for? And I had to sort of get that out a little bit. And, and what I realized was I was actually sort of, um, in, I was doing what the Pharisees are doing, taking a little bit of offense, of offense at God. And as I could sort of quiet my spirit and get that all out, I just sensed God saying to me, Ben, have I really not been helping? Have I really not been answering your prayer? Well, what about this? Did you forget about that? And what about this? Did you forget about that? What about that person who really encouraged you and strengthened your spirit? Did you forget about that? Remember that text you got yesterday? That didn't come out of nowhere. What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And I had to let Jesus open my eyes to the way he's been responding to me because I had a specific idea in mind that somehow I was going to pray and then be a superhero Christian and rise above all the struggles of the world and just like levitate or something. And Jesus had something else in mind. And for a moment, I was a Pharisee. I took offense at God because his answers did not jive with my categories. And so Jesus says, Listen, I've been telling you, look at my life. Look at the works I'm doing. They testify. They testify not just to God, but to this God that I have taught you to call Father. 
They testified to the fatherness of God. Look at what I'm doing. I'm healing the sick. I'm healing the blind. Lame people are walking. The poor have good news preached to them. Sinners are welcomed into the family of God. Look at what I'm doing. Can you see that this is the work of God? If you wonder who I am, let me open your eyes to what I'm doing. But he says... You don't believe because you're not among my sheep. Okay, now we're into this other weird metaphor, sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So now Jesus is in this like shepherd sheep metaphor. He's actually already been there earlier, earlier in John 10. He calls himself the good shepherd. So he's kind of picking up that thread again, saying like, let's go back to that sheep metaphor. And he says that the Pharisees can't see him because they're not his sheep. But there is a group of people who are his sheep, and what do they do? Well, they hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. There's a classic book called um, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Anyone ever heard of this book? It's a great book. It's like a devotional classic. Um, and it's, it's just the, you know, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's a shepherd, an actual shepherd, who writes about this metaphor of being a sheep and Jesus being our good shepherd. And um, one of the things, I sort of pulled it off the shelf this week to be like, what, what is the relationship between sheep and shepherd? Which is one of those things you only ever ask yourself if you're going to preach a sermon. And, and so I like pulled it off the shelf and I was like, how, well, sheep and shepherd. And he was describing how, um, how a shepherd can go out into a field and, and very softly just, just begin humming or, or, or speaking or, or saying something. And sheep will actually, like from far away in the field, they will hear that voice and they will just start wandering closer. Oh, maybe it's time to eat. Oh, maybe, you know, maybe the shepherd's here for some reason. But if somebody else goes out into the field and begins speaking or singing or making noise of any kind, the sheep will hear and they will actually walk away. And, and what he was saying is that, that sheep are, are, they get so used to one particular shepherd they get so like aware of one particular like voice and presence that when that person shows up in the field, they're like, I'm drawn in, I'm coming closer. I recognize that person. I recognize that tone of voice. I even recognize them like they're, they're, what they look like. Sheep become very attached to their shepherd. And so what he's saying here is that there's a group of people, it's not the Pharisees, the Pharisees aren't really catching on, but there, there are sheep of this good shepherd and they're able to hear his voice and they're able to follow him. And then as they do, he gives them eternal life. Eternal life is a kind of a tricky phrase, if, especially if you're like, like me and you've grown up in the church. It gets kind of tossed around a lot. And we have all these different sort of things we attach to it, right? Um, and, f- and for, I think, a lot of folks, eternal life means life that doesn't end, where when we die, we are in heaven with Jesus forever. And that's true. <laughs> that's true. Eternal life is not less than that. But according to what we see in the scriptures, it's actually infinitely more. You know, Jesus himself defines eternal life. In John chapter 17, which we haven't gotten to yet, he says, this is eternal life. And when Jesus is about to like tell you what's up, like this is eternal life, you wanna like lean in and be like, okay, wow, okay. Because Jesus has said that he came that we may have life. So tell me about this eternal life. What is eternal life? He says, this is eternal life. That they, as in all his followers, may know 
you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, to know God and to know Christ. To know God and to know Christ. What is the point of being a follower of Jesus? Is it to be a better person? Great goal. But, you know, you could probably get there with some good life hacks. It is the goal, the main point, the core of being a follower of Jesus to go to heaven when you die. Super important. (laughs) Absolutely, that's part of it. But in the meantime, are we just waiting around? What's the core? All these things are important to grow, to become holy and sanctified, to be saved for all eternity and with God. They're absolutely part of the promise. But what's the core? Well, this is eternal life, to know God and to know Christ. And what does he say about his sheep? Well, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He's talking about a kind of relationship that involves intimate familiarity. He's not talking necessarily about eternal security on a theological level. He's talking about relational security on an intimate level. Why can we go to heaven when we die? Because we know God and are known by him through Jesus Christ. And God wants to be with his kids for all eternity. Why do we grow and change and become more like Christ? Because we know God in intimate relationship. Second Corinthians chapter two tells us that as we contemplate the Lord's glory, we too are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. The closer we get to God, the more we become like him. Everything we're doing in the Christian life flows from a center of knowing Christ, intimacy with Christ. And I I can lose sight of this so often, and when I do, that's when I get offended with God. That's when I start wondering why he's not showing up. That's when I start thinking that maybe he's not listening, or maybe like the Pharisees, I haven't quite kept all the law perfectly, and that's why God's not here. And I can get caught in this way of thinking because I forget the God that I know. I forget the voice of my shepherd. And I I forget that it's all about knowing who he is. That eternal life is actually knowing God and knowing Christ. See, this is really important because um, if we begin with the circumstances of our life, or the movements of our heart, we will never discern the character of God. Our, our theologians and philosophers from way back in the early days of the, of the Jesus movement, people like Augustine, and then a couple centuries, many centuries later, uh, Aquinas, these people who are like the, the pillars of like Western philosophy, they, they both actually have these long 
treaties, treaties, treatises, treaties, treatises, where they, uh, where they talk about how we can never discern God from our own perspective looking outward. Like we can't look at creation and circumstances and, and try to think, oh, well, that must be what God is like. That must be what God is like. That must be what God is like. Because eventually we're gonna find something that seems to be pointing in a certain direction and we're gonna assign that to the character of God and we are gonna be way off course. But where we have to start is actually with God's self-revelation. The only way for the creature to know the creator is if the creator reveals himself to us. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, I'm revealing God to you. The works that I do in my Father's name, they testify about me. This is echoed later in the Gospels, in, or in the Gospel of John, in chapter 14, when Jesus says, listen, if you had known me, you would know the Father. But from now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. And then Philip goes, uh, the Father? Well, show us the Father, and that, then we'll be happy. If you just show us God, show us God, and we'll be happy. Show us the Father. And Jesus looks at him and goes, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't know me? I and the Father are one. Jesus is here to reveal the nature of the Father. Colossians tells us that he is the image of the invisible God and the exact representation of his being. You wanna know what God is like? Look at Jesus. This is why the Pharisees couldn't understand. This is why the Pharisees picked up stones to kill him. This is why the Pharisees were so just like worked up and angry and missing out on what God is doing because they said, this is who God is. And Jesus said, I'm actually here to show you who God is and you can't see it because you have such a specific idea of how God must fit your ideas and categories. This is what happens when we look at the circumstances of our life or the movements of our heart or the nature of the world or just what's happening in the news and we use that to determine what God is like. I have a lot of friends who see what's happening in the world and they say, well, clearly there's no loving God because this is happening and that's happening and this is happening. God either doesn't exist or is just a bully. And if we start from that end of things, and if we're honest, we might end up with a similar conclusion. If we read some parts in the Bible, we might wonder, is God really kind, loving, gracious? But if we begin with who God reveals himself to be, we actually can begin to see the circumstances of our life and the world and of our heart in a different way through the lens of his character instead of letting our life define who he is. So, so God reveals himself to us. He does it all through scripture. One of the first places he does it is that in a famous passage in Exodus chapter 34, um, Moses is asking God, hey, reveal yourself to me. I wanna know you, I wanna know your name. Proclaim your name to me. So God says, okay, I will hide you in the cleft of a rock and I will pass by and I'll pro proclaim my name to you. And so this happens in Exodus 34, verse six, and, and the, the, the presence of God passes before Moses and proclaims the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, maintaining love to a thousand generations, 
but by no means not dealing with sin, he says. Sin will have its consequences to the third and fourth generation. So this is God's like self-revelation, a just God, but who always seems to be leaning heavily on the side of gracious, compassionate, merciful, forgiving, understanding. A God who deals with sin, yes. Who writes the scales of justice, yes. But who will always, like the book of James tells us, who will always make sure that mercy triumphs over judgment. So God reveals himself to be this. And if we take God seriously, all the way back in Exodus, every story of the scriptures, every story of the gospels, everything we're seeing in our lives, everything we're seeing in the world takes on a different character. Can you imagine if the Pharisees came to Jesus and instead of saying, we know who God is, tell us if you're on our God team or not. Can you imagine if they came to him and said, we want to know God. God, God has revealed himself to be this gracious, compassionate, forgiving, merciful, and just God. And we see that you're doing works that seem to be good and right and kingdom of God type things. Will you tell us who God is? Can you imagine how different this conversation would have gone and they might not have actually missed out on all that Jesus has. See, for me, I can get tempted to let everything I'm feeling, thinking, experiencing, or seeing around me determine what God is like. And when I do that, I'm letting my life and circumstances define him. Instead of seeing him for who he is and saying, my good shepherd, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll hear your voice. You know me and I will follow you. And in this place, we actually have this, if we can really trust who Jesus is, really trust the character of God revealed in Christ, we begin to experience this, this sort of security, this like leisured confidence, this sense of like, I think I'm okay. I think I'm okay. There's so many things in this world that can make us insecure before God. The stresses of our families, the stresses of the, the broader world, wars and rumors of wars, even our own sin. You know, the, the Pharisees didn't want to be found lacking in the law because it made them insecure before God. Messiah wouldn't come. There are so many things that can make us insecure before God because we feel like we need to be sure of ourselves somehow. And yet here is Jesus saying, actually, what if, what, if you, what if you listened to my voice? What if you actually believed I am who I say I am? What if you stopped requiring me to prove myself to you according to your criteria, but you just listened and trusted that I am the things I've claimed to be? What might happen? Well, we might begin to experience this kind of security that says, I give them eternal life, they will never perish, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one will be able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so we begin to see our lives through a lens of relational security. 
We don't have to wonder, is God on my side? Does this mean that God is for me? Does that mean God is against me? We don't have to wonder, where are you, God? What do you do? We don't have to believe every emotion that passes through our mind and heart because a lot of them aren't telling the truth. We don't have to believe everything that the news is telling us or social media is telling us or the latest outrage is telling us. We can say, my God is good. My shepherd is good. I know his voice. I know him. And it gives me life. It gives me eternal life and a sense of security where I know that I will be okay even through the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Because you are with me. You are with me. And I know you. Sometimes uh, it's really hard to trust God in our circumstances in our failures, in our frustrations, in our world. But if we can learn to trust his heart, we can say prayers like, God, I don't understand what's happening. I don't understand why this is the way it is. But I know your heart. It's good. It's good. And so I can be okay. I can trust you. And I can actually continue forward without distancing myself from you. I don't have to take offense when you don't act this way or that way or or answer my prayer this way or that way. I can actually believe that whatever you're doing, it is good. You know there's one place in the Gospels where Jesus describes his own character he often will say, like, I and the Father are one. We just heard that. And we t- he talks about Father, the Father delighting in us, delighting to give us the kingdom. He talks about these sorts of things. There's only one place where he describes his own character. And it's in Matthew chapter 11. It's the famous passage where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. You know that passage? He says, go ahead and take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he's talking about this yoke, right, that like two, there's like two sort of like arches and the oxen would put their necks in this, these, these things and they would actually have like one really experienced oxen, like who had a really good resume or something, and then like one that was new to plowing and the, the one that was experienced would walk in a straight line and the other one would like get off course and then be like yanked back in and like keep going and they would do like a straight furrow down the field, you know, back and forth. And by the time the, the new oxen was sort of broken in, the, the, the experienced oxen had like sort of pulled most of the load, but it also helped them learn like how to plow in a straight line. Line, right? This is kind of how they, how they would do farming. And so uh, they, uh, Jesus is using this metaphor to say, like, get, get in the yoke with me. I'll be on this side, and I'll take most of the weight, because I know you're new at this, and you're always going to be a beginner. And I'll, I'll, I'll just sort of give you a gentle tug when we're off course, and we'll, we'll, we'll figure this out together. Here we go. And he says, so, so he says, get in the yoke with me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And he says, come and learn from me. Come and learn from me. So Jesus wants to be our teacher. And, and a teacher, right, a teacher, whether you're a, a, a teacher who's also an ox teaching the other ox, or whether you're a human teacher, uh, you have to correct people. You have to correct them. You have to bring them back in line. Oh, that thinking is not quite right. No, that's not the way we want to do things. No, nope, we got to try this differently. He says, come learn from me, and, and I, I will teach you. I will teach you. And if we stop there, that's great news for us because we do want to get better, but we, we don't actually know how he's going to teach us. 
And we might start having the experiences that maybe some of us had in grade school where we were a little scared of our teacher. We were like, I'm gonna get in trouble, I'm gonna get in trouble all the time, right? Oh, my, my homework is a little wrinkled. Oh, they're gonna be so mad, right? Maybe that was just me. Did I just have like a bad teacher? I don't know. Uh, but like we, we can begin to become afraid of our teacher um, and, and, and wonder like, am, am I gonna just totally get condemned and beat up and chewed out in front of everybody? Am I gonna get shamed? Am I gonna... But Jesus' next statement in Matthew chapter 11, he says, come and learn from me. Why? Because I am gentle and lowly in heart. He describes his character for us. What is Jesus like? Gentle, humble. So when my life isn't going according to my plan, it can feel like God is saying, forget you or saying, you are not getting it right, so I'm gonna tough love, I'm gonna get you back on course. And I can begin to assign all this character to God as if he either doesn't care or does care but is fed up. And it's just not the truth. I have to begin with the truth of who my shepherd is. I have to learn to hear his voice. I have to get familiar with him like the sheep do. So I know my shepherd is gentle and lowly. So if I'm experiencing correction or redirection, or this isn't quite looking how I thought it would look, okay, well what do I know of my shepherd? He's gentle, he's humble. I know his voice. And I can have this relational security that lets me not only weather the storms of my life, but helps me see them through a different lens. And they might even be, those dark storm clouds might even begin to take on a silver lining of the love of God. Wow, my father loves me. Wow, my father's good. And it doesn't take away the hardship, it doesn't take away the pain, but it also keeps me firmly rooted in the character of God as revealed by Jesus. Jesus came that we might know God whom he taught us to call Father. Jesus calls us to be his followers that we might know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And if we begin there, we begin to get to know what his heart is like, our circumstances may not change, our inner battles may not change, at least not right away, but we might be able to walk through life with a sense of relational security We know we're safe. We know our shepherd has got this. Because the alternative is just to get really, really upset. The alternative, if, if things get ugly enough and we are not sure of, if we've not come to know the heart of our shepherd and things get really, really tough, we really don't have any options but to take up arms, get, get embattled, get in the foxhole. But if we can trust in the heart of God, we might have a shot at weathering the storms of life as true sons and daughters, true beloved sons and daughters of God. There's a lot, there's a lot more we could say about this passage, but I really just wanna highlight that. When we come to God, do we come with preconceived ideas of who he is based on this thing or that thing that is going on in our life or in our heart? Or are we able to quiet that for a moment and just say, 
Jesus, who are you? Let me know your voice. Let me hear your voice. Let me trust that that is my good shepherd and let him lead us through. In a moment, we're gonna do um, some communion, which is something Jesus has invited us to do as his followers. If you're not a believer, um, this is a moment in the service that we just invite you to stay in your seat. Uh, and nope, it won't be weird, I promise. And uh, those of us who, who have trusted Jesus are gonna come up, dip the bread in the juice, take it back to our seats. You can take the elements on your own. We're not gonna do it as like a big group. Um, but if, if there's um, one place we can look to actually like really understand what God is like, y'all, I think it's the cross. I think it's the cross. I think it's the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ poured out for us. I think that's where we see the heart of God most clearly on display. So maybe take a moment to just recognize like, have any suspicions about the character of my shepherd kind of begun to infiltrate my heart? (laughs) Have I started to think that God's just waiting for me to get it together? Have I started to think that, that God is actually disinterested or uninvolved? Have I started to think that God is in some way fed up? Have I started to imagine these things that are just not true about who he is? And can I turn my mind instead to the cross? And can I say, no, that's who God is. He gives himself for my sake. He pours himself out, lets himself be broken for my sake, that I may know God, that I may know Christ. And then when you're ready, you can come up and take the elements. And just let this be a time that we reorient ourselves around the actual character of our good shepherd, a time when we hear his voice. We say, oh, my shepherd's here. Let me draw really close. Let me pray for us, and then the tables will be open. Lord Jesus, I just confess to you that, uh, that it's so easy to take offense at what you're doing in my life or take offense at the way you're answering or seeming not to answer my prayers. Jesus, right now I put that all on pause. I just quiet myself and I just declare you're good. You're kind, you're gentle, you're lowly. And I begin with who you've revealed yourself to be. I begin with the voice of my good shepherd that I've come to know. I trust you, Jesus. I trust you. Jesus, I repent of all the suspicions that have crept into my thinking about who you are and the way that you uh, interact with me. And I choose just to believe that you are good. I begin there. Jesus, I look to your cross now and I just trust that that's an expression of how much you're for me, how much you're for us. And Jesus, I ask that as I follow you, my gentle and lowly teacher, as I follow you, I trust that you'll lead me to good places. You'll lead me to places where I become more like you and that everything you do in my life uh, will be done in love. Thank you, Jesus. We trust you. In your name, amen.
together like this. God is with us. It's one of Jesus' great promises. He would be with us. He would never leave us. And in moments like this, you might begin to feel overwhelmed by the kindness of our good shepherd. The goodness of our father. He is unlike anyone else. He is so wonderfully other. He's holy. secure we can be secure because he doesn't change he's not fickle he doesn't get fed up he's our father I don't know if there's anyone <clears throat> here this morning that um, I, I didn't look around but, you know, Ben said, as we took communion, if you weren't a believer, then, you know, you're, you're very welcome to just stay in your seat. And that's right. Um, because when we receive the bread and the juice, that's, um, that's one of the ways we say yes to Jesus' invitation, his death on the cross. He says, here it is. It's my gift to the world. And then he gives us the choice. He invites us gives us the choice and if you didn't get up to receive communion this morning I want to I want to extend the invitation to you as, as, as simply as I can come and receive this gift come home come experience this amazing relationship and begin to walk with Jesus our good shepherd um, and if that means something to you this morning if you'd like to, to take a step you might still have a million questions that's okay um, but if you'd like to take that first step, as soon as we dismiss, which will be in about 30 seconds, I'd like you to come and meet uh, Ben, maybe a couple of our leaders, just right here. This is our little altar, as it were. And we're not going to put on a big show. No one's going to be staring, but someone will be here to pray with you, to walk with you as you take that step and come home. If you'd like someone to simply pray for you, maybe you say, I, I am a Christian, I love Jesus, but my goodness, what Ben shared this morning, it, it just brought up all sorts of things. Um, and you'd like someone to pray with you, uh, we can do that as well. In fact, we have a pastoral care team. Every week, we've got at least a couple of people who are standing by to pray for anyone. And they're always up in the balcony after the service.